0: Ladies and gentlemen, Benall of
1: America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Benall. Friends. This is Tim Binal of, Binal of America.com with the penultimate edition of B.O.A. Audio Season 4. I'll preview the interview you're about to hear with the iconic Bud Hopkins in just a moment. I want to throw out two plugs before we dive into the program. First, the next edition of B.O.A. Audio is, of course, the season finale of Season 4. And our guest is, if you haven't heard by now, the enigmatic and infamous John Lear. John Lear changed the face of ufology in the 1980s, much like this week's guest Bud Hawkins did, ironically enough. And we're going to talk to him all about that and a whole bunch of other stuff next week on the program. You definitely want to check out the season finale of BOA Audio Season 4 with John Lear. It is going to be a must-hear edition of the program. The other thing I want to plug is something I've been working on here for the last year. We're really kicking it into high gear starting this week and that is the Mass Paranormal Weekend. It is a convention of sorts October 16th to 18th in Watertown, Massachusetts. First night is UFO show. It is awesome. The guests are Nick Redfern, Peter Robbins, Nancy Talbot, and John Horrigan. They're going to be talking about UFO crashes, the Rendlesham Forest, UFO incident, crop circles, and psychic mediums. Black Helicopters, and the L.A. Air Raid of 1942. Then, on Saturday night, it is the mass monster mash. Lauren Coleman, Nick Redfern, Jeff Belanger, and Chris Balzano talking about the Abominable Snowman, Chupacabra, White House Ghosts, and other haunted places, and the infamous Bridgewater Triangle. That's on Saturday night. Sunday afternoon, speaking of the infamous Bridgewater Triangle, it is the mass mystery tour. That is a bus tour hitting some of the more notable locations within the Bridgewater Triangle for esoteric madness. Anyway, the event is Mass Paranormal Weekend, two nights and an afternoon event. Reasonably priced $25 for either of the nights, $35 for the bus tour. Reduced costs for people who buy tickets for multiple events. So, you know, if you want to go to Friday and Saturday, you want to go to Saturday and Sunday, you want to go to all three, there's all kinds of discounts at the website. Let me give you the plug for the website, and then we're going to get cooking on this week's edition of BOA Audio. The website is www.maparanormal.com. Wicked symbol. MAParanormal.com. All one word. Or go to BOA. There's going to be links all over the place. This is really my first foray into the conference realm, and I hope folks come and check it out. I know we have listeners all over to England, and at the prices for this conference, you could actually swing this trip for a pretty reasonable amount and meet a lot of huge names nick redfern peter robbins lauren coleman jeff belanger i mean these are superstars and we're bringing them to the mass paranormal weekend ma paranormal.com check it out there you go that was the sales pitch now let's talk about this week's edition of boa audio i couldn't be happier with this episode i was thrilled having bud hawkins on as a guest then read his book the recently published memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs, which recounts his remarkable and epic life, not just as the father of abduction research, but also as an acclaimed artist. As I mentioned to Bud when we start the interview, so many times when you're hearing him on an esoteric program, that art aspect of Bud Hopkins' life is criminally undersold. But here in this conversation, you're going to learn a lot about Bud Hopkins, the artist, as well as Bud Hopkins, the pioneering abduction researcher. In essence, we kind of split it in half. I'm hesitant to do the point-by-point preview because there's just so much stuff in here. It's really jam-packed with material. So the best way to put it is, first half is all about Bud's early life and accomplished career as an artist. You don't want to miss this, folks. I know this is an esoteric program. There's plenty of esoteric discussion weaved in there as we're talking about art with Bud Hawkins. So you don't want to miss this stuff. It is mind-blowing. Stick around for the art part. Don't fast forward to just UFOs. The UFO stuff, obviously, mind-blowing material with Bud Hawkins. All about some of the trends and the evolution of abduction research since Bud really broke the ground in the early 1980s. Plus a lot of discussion on ufology today and the problems facing the field of UFO studies. You definitely don't want to miss that. It is enlightening material from a true legend in the field of ufology. And I've already talked enough here about the interview, you're definitely going to want to listen to this one, so we're just going to dive in now to the bio part of the intro. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bud Hopkins, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Bud Hopkins is a world-renowned artist, author, and pioneer UFO abduction researcher. Having investigated well over 700 cases, he now heads the Intruders Foundation, a non-profit scientific research and support organization. Taken together, his three books, Missing Time intruders, and witnessed, are widely regarded by researchers and skeptics alike as comprising the most influential series of books yet published on the abduction phenomenon. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. I mean, this is one of the all-time greats. These works, Hopkins' lectures, and his other presentations have been responsible for bringing a number of other noted researchers, such as David Jacobs, John Carpenter, Yvonne Smith, and John Mack, among others, into this extraordinary area of specialization. His documented discoveries have become the basis of most later abduction investigations and research. Hopkins' goal has always been to bring an objective, dispassionate scientific intelligence to bear on the UFO abduction phenomenon. To this end, he founded the Intruders Foundation in 1989. IF is a non-profit organization devoted to research and public education concerning these extraordinary enigma. Despite its extremely controversial nature, Hopkins' research has received serious commentary in such mainstream publications as Time Magazine, Paris Match, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, Omni, People Magazine, and Cosmopolitan. He's been a guest on hundreds of television shows and radio programs, including Nightline, Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Tonight Show, Charlie Rose, Larry King Live, 2020, 48 hours, unsolved mysteries, encounters, a current affair, Night Watch, The Late Show, Coast to Coast AM, Tom Snyder, National Public Radio, Voice of America, Armed Forces Radio, numerous BBC affiliates, and many other shows and forums. And now I'm proud to say he's appeared on BOA Audio. His website is www.intrudersfoundation.org. Pretty simple, both words, put them together, at a .org, intrudersfoundation.org. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 12th, 2009. Bud Hopkins, talking about art, life, and UFOs, a memoir, on the penultimate edition of BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of ben All of America Audio. Usually I sort of build up to who the guest is, but I'll just start out and say our guest is the iconic Bud Hopkins, and it is just a thrill for me to be talking to him. Last night I just finished his new book, his memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs. I can't put this book over and off. It's outstanding. As many people know who've been listening to the program for a long time, I've been needling Stan Friedman for the last two years to write a memoir. So when this arrived in the mail, I nearly uh, lost it because I was so excited to read it. And it's about time such an impact player in the world of esoterica, wrote their story, and I I just couldn't be happier with the book. Art, Life, and UFOs by Bud Hawkins. It's from anomalous books. Go out and get it right now, folks, because you're going to love it as much as I did. Just to give you a sort of a thumbnail look at what the book is, you know, Bud was born in 1931, stricken with polio as a child, had just some tumultuous years as a kid, moved to New York in the 1950s to become an artist, befriended, and really was a part of the Famous abstract expressionist painting movement. Friends with Alger Hiss, almost fought Jack Kerouac once, introduced David Jacobs and John Mack to abduction research, had an infamous run in with Shirley MacLaine and Carl Sagan. He's appeared on Oprah, Larry King, and many, many other huge TV shows. And, you know, the world of abduction research really uh, began with Bud Hopkins. I'm sure there were people talking about it beforehand, but Bud really set the stage for it. He is the giant upon whose shoulders. So many people in the world of esoterica Stan, He's an icon. He's a Hall of Famer, first ballot, no doubt about that, and a living legend. And uh, it's just a huge thrill for me to be talking to him. As I said, I read the book last night. I felt like I spent the day with Bud Hawkins yesterday as I read the whole book. And uh, I'm just so excited to be talking to him. Bud, welcome to Been All of America Audio. It's been a long time coming, but I'm really happy to have you here on the show.
2: Well, thank you. I, I don't know what I'd have to do besides tap dance to live up to an introduction like that my gosh <laughs> <laughs> but many thanks for all the wonderful things you just said well i meant it
1: but i i really did and i i just uh was so thrilled with the book and and i really hope people go out and get it and i, I want to make a point here about the title art life and ufos a memoir just just poignant and beautiful in a way and, and kind of telling too because you know there are a lot of people in the UFO field that if they were to write their memoirs, uh the book would be just titled uh UFOs Is Life. <laughs> so <laughs> so I think that uh you know, you really encapsulate a lot of what I believe in too as well that, you know, life is a is a just a, a full spectrum of different things and your life has been epic. And if I could achieve, you know, ten percent of what you've done I I'd die a happy man. So to be able to talk to you now and really dig into this amazing life that you've put down into words here for everybody to uh, experience. is going to be great.
2: Well, thank you very much. And of course, in a certain sense, I've been very lucky to have lived through some uh, some very dramatic times in history and in the art world, in the UFO world, and just in, in general American history. So,
1: Of course. Uh,
2: other people have not been so lucky who have been born perhaps... Uh, 20 or 30 years later. So I have that advantage, I have to say.
1: <laughs> that's true. And if someone's living under a rock somewhere they don't know, you're, of course, the the author of the groundbreaking and iconic Missing Time, as well as Intruders, Witnessed, and uh, Sight Unseen. And, and you know, usually we start the interview with, you know, a little bio background, but that that's the whole gist of the interview here. So I guess to start the whole thing out, you know, why a memoir? What made you decide to put down your life's work here in a words?
2: Well, I think that essentially, as you hit a certain age, and I'm sure hit it hard at 78, you know, <laughs> so you, you kind of look back and think, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's taken place, uh, over these 78 years, and things that I just don't want to have disappear. Uh, there's a, it's an awful thing to think that, uh, you know, when you go, you take with you Uh, so much richness that's occurred uh, in your life with other people and so forth so I decided to put it all together I originally started this because my daughter who was as a teenager years ago said to me amazingly as we were walking along she said you know dad I don't think I know very much about you and I was stunned because I thought I talked about myself more than most people (laughs) Uh, so, at any rate, I thought I'd, I'd start writing, you know, kind of memoir and, and family history and so forth, because part of what she said I thought applied to the fact that she didn't know too much about uh, my family background. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I was working on this over the years, and I've been at this off and on, probably over a uh, 10, 15 year period. Oh wow. And, uh, what happened is I began to get more and more serious about it, and I began to decide to drop out the family stuff that uh, wasn't going to be interesting to anybody who wasn't uh, at least a second cousin of mine. Or something. <laughs> so uh, I would just kind of concentrate on the things that might be interesting for one reason or another to uh, readers in general, whether they even knew about my uh, UFO work and my art or not. And so it, it began the process, I began the process of paring down, and uh, then as you do this over years, things pop into your mind, as a matter of fact, on uh, the little chapter, and it's arranged in terms of, of as you know, of, of uh, little pieces which are uh, sort of almost self-contained, and the piece that I wrote about, which was uh, called "Dodging Hits,"
0: <laughs> yes. which was
2: my uh, uh, dealing with um, when I was a very young man with uh, hits from um, uh, various um, uh, closeted gay men, who uh, I thought, of course, at least hoped to think were interested in my art, and that was what they were interested in. So I, uh, I suddenly thought about that. Gee, that's a whole. Collection of little incidents that I should put together because in terms of social history, it lets people know today what it was like for the, these men who were very closeted. And very sub- subject to, uh, possible blackmail. And so on in those days, it was a very tough time for them. And it was a very d- depressing time for me to find out <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that they weren't about to buy a painting or give me a show. <laughs> they were interested in something else, sort of a casting couch thing. But when that popped into my mind, I thought, well, that's a whole other, you know, piece of social history and, uh, social history mixed with personal biography. Mm-hmm. So I, I put that together as one of the, uh, last uh sections in the book to, to have pop into memory, but the book pro uh, you know went that way uh with little bio sections of uh, of various people in the art world then in the u f o world I have uh a piece on Alan heineck and one on Lawrence Rockefeller and then one on on John of course yeah so it it was just an accumulation of of these little Sort of nuggets of memory, which I thought would be interesting to people uh, at large.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, the book is fascinating. I also want to give you credit too here because, uh, you know, you do tell some stories in there that, uh, you know, were embarrassing or humiliating or difficult for you. And, and, and that's really, I guess, uh, shows your wisdom. To, to include those in the book, you know, I don't know, maybe, I'm young, I, I'm, I'm only 30, so, you know, I can't imagine ever including any of my embarrassing stories in, <laughs> in a memoir, but uh, i got to take my hat off to you, because some of them, you know, the story of uh, your 10-year birthday party, the fight there, yeah. and, um, you know, the earliest memory of you on the cart, Uh, when you were stricken with polio. I mean, you really had to plumb the depths there. And I just, you know, amazing stuff.
2: Some of that was, you know, has lived with me very, very strongly for years.
1: I'm sure, yeah. Uh,
2: Humiliations never go away. (laughs) That's that's one of the great life experiences that you're going to have at your dying day, Mm -hmm. memories of of humiliations.
0: That's
1: for sure. Like, as I said, uh, art, life, and UFOs. And I feel like, to the people in ufology and the people who have an interest in the paranormal and stuff like that, your career as an artist is almost undersold to the point where you know it's always an afterthought to these people. And that's not the case with this book, and, and for the people who pick it up, read the first half of the book because that's as fascinating and compelling and remarkable as the second half UFO stuff. So anybody who starts at the UFO material is a fool, and they should start at the beginning of the book because – I was completely blown away by that, and, and that's where we're going to start today uh, in this conversation with the beginning and the art period as well as the UFO stuff because we're not going to undersell that. Just to sort of start out, I guess, in your in your artistic career, one observation you make, which uh, really sort of struck me as a, as a fascinating sort of observation, you say three major areas where nature bestows luscious color in such abundance – flowers, tropical fish, and birds – that's you know that's the eye of the artist I guess you'd say. Well you know?
2: when I was uh, very very little and uh, had polio uh, I began sort of concentrating my life on what was about as far away from me as, as I could reach with my arms since I couldn't walk and so I began scribbling and drawing and making things uh, as a very little kid. and when I finally went to a preschool practically daycare thing, when I was a little more mobile, well, there was a teacher there who had everybody drawing and painting and making little sloppy things. and uh, I remember drawing uh, or copying pictures of tropical fish and just being totally fascinated. And uh, I couldn't remember whether there was actually a a tropical fish tank there or whether I was just shown pictures, but they were so beautiful. And as a little kid, you like something that's bright and that's actually alive. And the idea of these little fish fascinated me, and I began to seek them out whenever I could, go to aquariums and so on. And um, I think that the the strange delicacy of color of tropical fish probably had something to do with my thinking about color when I began painting more seriously uh, as, as I mentioned in the book that I, I uh, can hardly pass a, a pet shop without going in yeah. and look at the tanks, just to look at the fish so uh, th- th- those sorts of observations I mean if you if you end up a, a painter those sorts of observations uh, are really feeding into what is coming out of you on the canvas, and I suppose those images of the the uh, the colors that I was seeing with the tropical fish fed into what I was making as art, along with the idea that my uh, father had taken the family to the New York World's Fair in 1940, believe it or not, and uh, I was just totally fascinated. I was that would have been nine years old by the architecture and these. Wild sort of modernistic curves and points and spirals and so forth. And, uh, I've since really thought that some of the guardian paintings that I have been doing for a number of years, uh, were definitely influenced just in their shapes and their construction by some of the, uh, uh modern buildings that I saw at the World's Fair. So all this stuff is, feeds into, uh, into your, uh, your work. And as I pointed out that one of the great things about art is uh, how it conserves your life, uh, that almost everything that's, that's gone into your life stays there or can stay there and come out in the art, uh, whether it's something that happened when you were a tiny child and <clears throat> it sort of recurs uh, later when you're 40. <laughs> so there's a, there's a kind of a wonderful efficiency about that.
0: Yeah.
1: And we're going to, I guess, move a bit away from the art for one question here and and into your family life and and, uh, your upbringing. And I want to make sure I get the quote right because I found it kind of interesting, especially since it sort of flies in the face of what uh, some people think. And that's just that – here's what you say. I'll quote you. To believe that a child can be forced to feel real hatred for Jews or blacks is like believing that a child can be forced to feel profound love for a particular aunt or cousin. Sort of speaking to the idea that you know upbringing – Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily influence one's perspective on, um, you know, minorities and and really world, you know, the world. I guess you could say. So I guess talk a little bit about that because you know you always sort of hear, and I got to compliment you. Uh, I'm going to break <laughs> the question here again, but uh, I got to compliment you just on, you know, plumbing the depths again about your relationship with your dad. I lost my father about two years ago, so you know I really. Uh, was drawn to that part of the book, and my father was a lot like your dad—conservative, old-school guy. So it was sort of like looking in the mirror in a lot of ways. And you and I turned out the same sort of way, very liberal, uh, after coming off of the uh, being raised by a conservative, old-school dad. But I guess talk a little bit about your your uh, observation. I guess you could say about you know uh, raising a child and how how children, you know, grow up their own way and and irregardless of uh, the perspective of their parents.
2: Right. Well, one of the interesting things is uh, that I became aware when I began thinking about it in an objective way, I became aware of the fact that I could never remember my father trying to sort of uh, indoctrinate me or my sister and my brother into uh, anti-Semitism and racism. The weird thing was, is that he just assumed that we would be that way. What's I find interesting here is that uh, my father was—he uh, was quite a bit older too when I was born, but he was born in uh, 1889, and so he was 11 in 1900, and as essentially a product of the 19th century. And uh, I think that it was just for him natural to assume that one looked down on on Jews and African Americans and so forth. And so I think he thought it would be natural that his kids would. And I think it, it came as kind of a shock that uh, we weren't responding that way. And I just think that part of this is is uh, age and history. I forgot who it was who said that uh, old-fashioned scientific tenants tend to uh, disappear only when the people who hold them die. Yeah. Uh, That uh, somehow instead of the the new scientific ideas percolating uh, up to older people, the older people tend to hold the old ones. That's why we're having trouble, I think, with a lot of people in the UFO field. Uh, But uh, I think that this really very much applies to some of these social mores that my father held and, uh, I do think that he was shocked when he found me arguing with him about this. It just that in my friends in school and, and, uh, classmates and, and certainly getting to college and all that, I didn't really run into bigots, uh, in any way. Uh, most people were pretty liberal and open about their attitudes towards minorities and, uh, I think my father couldn't understand that, that that would be the case, but uh, it certainly was. And I think the thing that I wanted to deal with, it's that more importantly here, going on what you said about the loss of your own father and how this, uh, my relationship with my father was uh, meaningful to you, that I, I was trying to write a, a rounded picture of my father almost in spite of myself there was I didn't set out to uh, to uh, deal with my father as much as I ended up doing in the book yeah because I think none of us really can consciously you know focus on how much our fathers have influenced us so as I wrote I began to realize the, the many levels at which he affected my life and I wanted to include, of course, the uh, the horrible horrible part, which is the, the bigotry and racism, but to show him as a very rounded and very loving person. And funny, I was talking to Jerry Clark, who uh, had read the book, and um, Jerry said that he said that he thought that that was one of the most interesting parts of the book, and that he had some uh, some very good friends uh, now, older people. Who were also bigoted in the same way, but that he had enormous affection for them, and he understood the complexity of uh, that kind of relationship with its many contradictory parts.
0: Really,
1: absolutely, yeah, 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 and uh, yeah. I'm just <laughs> I'm a little bit speechless here, just because I'm, I'm thinking about my dad and just the mm-hmm. uh, the book, and and just how how well uh, how much I connected with that that whole part, because it was like it really was like uh, reading a lot of stuff about my dad too. So Um, to move back into the art world, I really was just fascinated with a lot of your observations in the book. Um, And one of them was about how the painters you were friendly with were sort of ignorant about world affairs Mm -hmm. and politics. Um, And I kind of found that a little bit interesting too, contrasting it in a weird way with people that are interested in the paranormal and the esoteric. Um, And as I sort of joked earlier, if, if some of them wrote memoirs, it would be UFOs is life. Um, you know it seems like they are ignorant of the arts in a way so it's kind of a weird sort of juxtaposition so I guess just talk a little bit about how ironic it was I guess that the that the painters you were friendly with really just didn't care too much about world affairs and were sort of in that bubble of the, of the art industry
2: well I think that uh, what had happened of course is the older artists when I was uh, first in New York in the early 50s uh, and I was a kid just out of college and Uh, The artists that I uh, got to know were all mostly, uh, they were 40 or 50 years old, and they had lived through the Depression in a way that I hadn't. I mean, I had been there, but I was such a little child, I didn't know much what was going on. But they had all been through the Depression and had no money and uh, were in a situation where they felt powerless. They didn't feel connected with the government and, of course, what happened is that uh, uh, at the time I had first come to, uh, to New York, Eisenhower had been elected. And, of course, with the great Richard Nixon as the vice president, we were in a terrible uh, political um, backwater, actually. And so everybody was so depressed, and they had come out of feeling powerless through the uh, recession, uh, depression. Uh, and so they just sort of wrote it off. Nobody, I mean, they'd, they'd make cracks about Eisenhower and Nixon, but nobody was busy poring over the New York Times. I shouldn't say nobody was, but the majority uh, were not. They, they uh, Art was just absolutely central to them. And I also pointed out in the book that uh, how uh, few of the artists I knew were really avid readers of literature, so yeah. poetry and so on somewhere but uh, it was again that wasn't it uh, as i mentioned in the book the thing that everybody was into and totally obsessed about were movies everybody went to the movies and had opinions about the various auteur directors and so forth but uh, i think that politics were it was it was such a backwater and such a bad time politically that People just sort of gave up.
1: Yeah. I guess, what about the observation I made here about just how it seems like the opposite is true in a way with people in the esoteric, where they're more involved in the politics and then neglect the art side of life?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, you know, we don't kid ourselves as painters that we have a huge audience. We really don't. I've said a number of times that I wonder what percentage of the homes or apartments in the United States, what percentage, uh, say, of the living rooms in the homes and apartments, uh, have had more money spent on the art on the walls than on the lamps in the rooms? <laughs> and I would imagine you're you're way down at the you know uh, a hundredth of a percent or yeah. something of that sort. Uh, it just is nobody is. Uh, I mean, painting is, is seen as a as a really minority pastime, and um, even though now it's, it's, it has a great deal more popularity, uh, pe- more people go to museums, pouring into the, for the big, uh, blockbuster shows. But in those days, the museums, uh, in, in the fifties, the museums are pretty, pretty deserted. Yeah. I mean, you walk through the Museum of Modern Art, you'd go through four rooms and pass two people. Uh, and now, you know, the place is crowded. So, uh, I think that, We still have to face the idea that not that many people are interested in painting, uh, modern painting or historical uh, museums and so forth. Uh, just in general, whether whether they're involved in UFO research or whether they're selling aluminum siding or whatever the hell they're doing. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: I mean, I just don't think that there's that big an interest. And, and of course, I look around and I I have a couple of friends who are poets, and I really feel sorry for them (laughs) because uh, nobody's really interested in poetry except other poets. And, um, you know, for a book of poetry to sell eight or nine hundred copies yeah uh, is a huge uh, uh, it's a huge success and when you think of the uh, the pot boiler novels that you know are millions of copies and so uh, so it's kind of depressing i mean we're we're in a we're in a kind of a cul-de-sac almost it's just unfortunate
1: yeah yeah it is uh, 500 yeah. channels is saturated uh, entertainment so much that it's really uh, changed the face of, of popular culture in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things is that writing the memoir was not uh, the memoir wasn't being avidly sought out by the big publishers because of its nature, because of its being a, a, a book about various complex subjects all intertwined, intermixed. But when I think about it, and having a small publisher bring the book out, yeah, I'm, and I'm thinking like, well. There are hundreds of thousands of people who have actually read my other books. You know, you'd think there would be some, uh, more interest in this. But again, it's kind of, memoir is often, uh, especially of such a, uh, a different kind of, such a different kind of memoir. In other words, I'm not writing about how I was sexually abused as a child or overcame drunkenness or something, uh, which the memoirs tend to be mostly about. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's still a kind of, I guess, ghettoization that goes on with uh, with art, and it's kind of unfortunate. But the UFO subject is, it probably has, you know, much more readership than art memoirs would.
1: Absolutely, and, and to make a sad point, too, even that readership, the UFO readership is small in comparison to
2: yeah, it is.
1: the larger uh, body of readers. Now, I did get an email from... From someone a while ago that asked me to try and get the guests to tell some more stories from their books and stuff like that, because I sort of focus on uh, like what I've been doing so far, which is observations that the Mm -hmm. uh, that they make. So I guess uh, the story that I think I'd like to hear you share is uh, the near fight with Jack Kerouac,
0: uh,
1: because I found it really interesting, and of course it's accompanied by sort of an an observation of uh, the way the scene was changing. I guess you could say in New York with the Beat poets exploding on the scene and how people seem to think that they would be friends and, and compatriots with uh, the abstract expressionist painters of the time. But really, they were sort of two separate camps, and that's exemplified by your near fight with Jack Kerouac. So uh, talk well, a little bit about that.
2: Thank God it was a near fight, too. <laughs> because, as I said in the book, he was a big, tough, and drunk, and I was none of the three at that time.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: But at any rate, uh, there's also a kind of interesting little coda to this but um, my young wife at the time uh Joan who was probably maybe 19 or 20 and I was pretty young we went to a party at um, the musician uh David Amram's and uh, uh David Amram is jazz musician and but essentially is kind of a serious composer and a crossover musician very interesting guy and uh, at the party there weren't many artists and uh Kerouac was there and Corso and Ginsburg and um a lot of writers and musicians and I left uh Joan to uh get a couple drinks for us, or whatever it was and when I came back, Kerouac had her sort of pinned against the wall, leaning over her and just coming on like crazy and very drunk <clears throat> and she was looking sort of terrified and I came over and uh Kerouac gave me this look like, get the hell out of here, and, and uh, I uh, explained that this was my wife, and uh, he should get the hell out of here, <laughs> and at that point, he started to, into this kind of rage, and started, you know, uh cussing me out, and bawling his fists, that sort of thing, and uh, Dave Amram uh, was seeing what was going on, he came uh, sailing over, and he... uh escorted Joan and me out, because she was scared, and you know I was certainly scared, too, so we left, and uh, the whole thing was, Kerouac had, uh, had written his book, which was a, a huge uh, bestseller at that time, on the road, and I think he th- he just assumed he was entitled, you know, at that point, he was a big shot, and I was a very, very little shot at that time, so um, the thing that's interesting about this sort of crazy near fight was that uh, about uh, three weeks ago I was in Newport Rhode Island with some friends at a, at a gathering of people who uh, were involved with the UFO subject and uh, the woman who was the hostess, Anne Cavalier, said oh, she she said I met a very interesting man who's visiting here uh, friends next door and he said he's very interested in UFOs and wanted to come over his name is David Amram. And I said, geez, my God, that's David Amram. I know David Amram very, very slightly, but I knew him casually the way we knew each other many people, hundreds of people years ago. So uh, he came over and uh, I told him the story, which of course was just one incident amongst uh, probably a thousand. (laughs) And he said, well, he spent a lot of time. just exactly doing that, trying to um, pull Kerouac away from some kind of drunken fight, and uh he said he was sort of like a minder for um uh, Kerouac for time that he thought it was very funny because it was this was so in character, so you know right out of his character as he knew him but uh but dave Emram has, has turned out to be. Really interested in UFOs, so there, there was a kind of a, a circling around. He and I are about the same age, so uh, we 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 share a lot of uh, memories of different people of those times.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's strange. Yeah, it's a small world. It reminds me of the story in the book about your daughter taking the shuttle bus.
2: Yeah, is that something?
1: Yeah, that's an amazing story. Yeah, taking the for the people who are <laughs> wondering what we're talking about, taking yeah. the uh, shuttle bus with a woman who was also heading to West Virginia, turned out from the same town as you, and in fact was uh, hired by your family to go down to Florida when you were just a little boy uh, and struggling to uh, recover from polio, and she was sort of hired by your family as like a sort of a a minder, if you will, or a babysitter for you. So it was like, wow, this is a strange small world uh, story, and that's sort of like the same same thing here with the David Ambram thing.
2: That was amazing, and actually my daughter – was just here uh, about uh, having left uh, Wellfleet on the Cape where I am about 20 minutes ago with uh, my uh, new grandchild. So, uh, But that was uh, something that happened to her when she was about 19 and uh, when she got in this cab with, with an old lady and they discovered they were going to the same small town in West Virginia. So, well, the world was full of coincidences like
0: that.
1: But. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. I'm glad that story made it into the book. Now, as an artist, what inspires you or what changes your thought process I guess to change mediums altogether? Cuz I was really surprised by how you know, you were doing all this painting and then you moved to some amazing sculpture work. And no. just seemed like so out of left field but you know i'm i'll, I'll confess that i'm blissfully ignorant to the art world so mm-hmm. this this book was an amazing education for me about a whole bunch of stuff that i'd never even known about and really enjoyed um so maybe this is something that happens all the time and i'm just a, a clown but but uh <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but i am oh. interested in, in you know what what makes what makes an artist such as yourself you know, decide to change mediums so drastically like that?
2: Well, I I suppose there are all kinds of factors that that come into play. But uh, I think that what was most important is as, when I was uh, really essentially into abstract expressionist painting, which was very painterly, meaning big, heavily loaded brushes, thick brushstrokes, Jackson Pollock would come to most people's mind as an abstract expressionist and so forth. The whole process was liquid and uh, filled with improvisation. And sculpture is not liquid and can't be improvised in the same way. You're dealing with heavy materials. Mm -hmm. So I never had any interest in it, as for me personally. But I think that what happened is when I started painting what I call guardian paintings and uh, making uh, sort of wall constructions that I call temples, and became more and more interested in uh, ancient art and actually went to Greece and uh, was looking at uh, you know incredible artifacts there of course you're not really looking at painting because there isn't much Greek painting that survives but you are looking at incredible sculpture objects uh, solid three-dimensional objects and since my head was going in the direction of uh, these kinds of ancient um, very emotionally rich, you know historically loaded objects mm-hmm. that I was uh, trying to sort of latch onto in my own work in, as a painter. Uh, I think that there was always kind of muttering in the background the possibility of of doing work that was three-dimensional because that would in a strange way bring it even closer to some of the older images that i was you know really inspired by so um i found myself getting more and more interested in something that uh, i had paid very little attention to in terms of my own uh creative process i certainly loved and admired sculpture and went to sculpture shows and so forth but i wasn't thinking of doing anything myself in that direction and as I mentioned uh, in the book, uh, <clears throat> Ed Reinhardt, the painter, uh, had a very negative view of sculpture, and he uh, defined uh, sculpture on exhibit in the gallery as something you backed into when you were looking at a painting on the wall.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So
2: uh, that was more or less my attitude, too. But then I became extremely involved with uh, uh, as an admirer of Brancusi's work. And... Uh, that's a long story. We'd have to have uh, slides, but I don't think we have the slides available right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Uh,
2: But that's that's what happened. I think it it became important for me to try to make three dimensional objects, which had a different uh, a different quality from the painting because it, they did not seem improvised in any way. They seemed. Are kind of monolithic, as if they've been that way for centuries, and I wanted them to look ancient.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make a great uh, sort of. I don't know if it was you or an art critic who made the obvious. I think it was you that that sort of you're almost inventing like your own ancient world in a way with these yeah. uh, with these pieces. So yeah,
2: um, yeah. I wanted these things to look like uh, instead of looking like a modern sculpture, to look like something that if you came across it in a forest in a clearing. Uh, it might look like some sort of uh, altar from some ancient religion that's, that's long since passed. Yeah. Because that kind of thing really interests me. Uh, the idea that, uh, uh, as I said in the book, that it seems to me that even though art has changed again and again and again, what has remained unchanged is what's really interesting to me. And that is that... Uh, Works of art end up in some way mediating between us as human beings and all the questions that we all have about what's out there and what comes after death, and if anything. And so, therefore, the idea of an altar or a temple to an unknown religion is interesting to me.
0: Mm,
1: yeah. I got a few more points here on the artwork, and, and mm-hmm. uh, then we'll get into the UFO stuff, and, and I want to just sort of, first of all, obviously, tell people to go out and buy the book, and, and I want to note a few things that they should look for that we're not going to get a chance to talk about here in the book, but I want to put over from the art portion of the book, notably Mark Rothko and the haunting – Concept of him always painting the grave, and and you'll know what I'm talking about, folks, when yeah. you read the book. But it's it's haunting, and Bud's amazing observations and interactions with Jackson Pollock that's in there, and Franz Klein, and and I believe it was the dream that it was Franz in the dream, right?
2: Oh, yeah, that was an amazing uh, experience for me, I tell you.
1: Absolutely. Now, I'll leave those three talking points there for folks to go and find out about in the book. So go buy the book and look for those parts of the book, because all three of those aspects of the art portion of the book are amazing and and stayed with me uh, having read the book and and following uh, completion of reading the book. Now, the next uh, point here in the notes I want to talk to you about, which I found um, compelling and I wanted to get your perspective on it, because um, as, a, as a non-artist, it left me sort of in the dark. You talk about your friendship with Robert Motherwell, and notably, he put together this uh, series called The Spanish Elegy, and mm-hmm. you pointed out that one of them, to him, you thought that one of the paintings was, and this is what the word you used, was a failure, and mm-hmm. then towards the end of the story, you say that recently you destroyed 11 of your older paintings, mm-hmm. which you deemed failures, and uh, I guess... The question is, and it's kind of basic, but as I said, I don't mm-hmm. really—I'm not really an artist, so I don't understand um, yeah. what constitutes a failure. What do you—what do you mean when you say that something's a failure?
2: Well, th- there's there's a little difference between uh, the Motherwell situation and mine. Motherwell had done a series of paintings which are called Spanish Elegies, as you mentioned, and uh, they were shown at the uh, National Gallery in Washington uh, as a group. And they're very closely related to one another. I won't uh, describe them, but they're mostly black and white. They're they're very powerful. Uh, They're his best paintings, really, I think. But he had one painting there that um, simply didn't work because, uh, shall we say, it had too many moving parts. The other paintings were much simpler, and they seemed far more powerful and tougher. This one seemed to have a lot of little fragmentary parts to it. Which weakens the uh, effect of the strength that the other paintings had. So my problem there with with this, which I said to him, was that I thought it was weakening the uh, the impact of the the whole series, the whole idea of, of these elegies. And it, he was thinking of giving it to a museum, and I said I didn't think he should do it. And uh, it was it was a very difficult thing to do because he was. Uh, senior artists a lot older than I and so on but in my case when I destroyed these paintings essentially what they were was very early paintings which were um, not parts of any particular series but which were actually much more transitional in my work where I wasn't as clear about what I was doing um, as I became with uh, a few years later so these paintings were all dating from uh the nineteen fifties, and uh, I just felt that in a certain sense, if you put them all up together, they would seem to be uh, a slightly incoherent group, uh, and I decided that I would uh, cover my tracks and destroy them. <laughs>
1: Okay, all right, that makes sense. All right, and then uh, as pointed out throughout the book and on the back here, uh, you know, your your works are in all sorts of amazing and awesome museums: the Guggenheim, the Whitney, Metropolitan Museums, Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, New York's Museum of Modern Art. This is going to maybe sound like an ignorant question, but uh, maybe not. But Let's say someone goes to the Guggenheim or, uh, I'm in, I'm like, yeah. you know, a stone's throw from Boston, so I'm, I'm definitely going to have to go over to the Museum of Fine Arts to look for your stuff. How does one find your paintings in these great museums? Do you just- well,
2: th- th- this is of course the problem. You most likely won't because museums have g- absolutely gigantic collections and what they can exhibit at any one time is really a tiny percentage of the collection. Uh, the Museum of Modern Art, which is had a number of years ago, had expanded its uh, exhibition space enormously. And they have a lot of space uh, now available for loan shows, which come in, which means that the works they're showing are being borrowed from the artist or from collections and so forth. But uh, it, apparently the Museum of Modern Art felt that even if they gave all of the wall space and all of the uh, exhibition dollars to the, their permanent collection, that they could only show a little less than 2% of it. Oh, wow. 98% would be in storage. And uh, I would guess at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, uh, well, as an example, they have a, a superb Picasso, late one, uh, called The Rape of the Sabines. It's a version of, of an older painting. And I've only seen that up twice since I've been going to the Boston Museum. So that's a, that's a major Picasso. Uh, so the problem is that people in my generation that they own are lucky if, I mean, if, if let's say they have my, my age range or say, let's say they have 300 paintings. 300 different paintings by different people i would imagine that they it would be lucky if you'll see 20 of the 300
0: oh, wow uh,
2: up so i mean there's just a it, it's just a terrible problem uh the guggenheim uh, uh used to send out a note to you when they were actually hanging a painting <laughs> i don't think they do that anymore though uh, but when they're hanging a work of yours but uh this is one of the major problems uh, just to give you an idea that uh, uh the museum of modern art did a catalog of the picassos that it owns and this catalog came out uh in the 70s and in the 30 years since then they probably acquired lots of picassos uh people donate them and so forth when yeah. they die, you know so when i went to the museum uh when they rehung this the expanded show Picasso was the most uh, his works were the most prevalent of anybody's and um, I looked at the catalog when I went home from the 30 year old catalog and found 37 major Picasso's in there that weren't up oh wow so 37 Picasso's were not hanging from 30 years ago and there are probably another 30 or 40 new Picasso's that they've acquired since then. so I mean, the whole thing is, the whole picture is just ridiculous. Some of the museums uh, do a a good job of lending parts of the collection to smaller museums around the country. But uh, uh, things are shown from time to time, and things of mine are shown from time to time. But often, I guess, it's it's better to go online and see if you can find something, even though that's not so complete. And When I say online, I mean going to the museum's websites.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's probably good, because otherwise I'd end up at the Museum of uh, Fine Arts here in Boston demanding to see the Hopkins, and they would probably throw they me. out. They have up. a really
2: good one. Well, now, the thing is, in the um, the back of the book, uh, the, uh, the back cover, mm-hmm. uh, I have a painting called Mahler's Castle, which is, I think, the uh, second from the end yep. of the four. And uh, that's the study, which I still own, For the painting that's in the Boston Museum, it's an 11-foot painting. Awesome. uh, It's a really terrific painting, but uh, I can guarantee it's not up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is one of the sad stories about the art world. You know, the gigantic holdings that we all like to see that uh, just don't get shown.
1: It's like the uh, Indiana Jones movie there when they the uh holy grail in the, in the smithsonian warehouse and just keeps panning back and you see <laughs> <laughs> how big it is now i guess the perfect segue question here from the art world to the ufo world is an observation you make towards the end of the book about how people with new age beliefs gravitate towards the egyptian and mayan cultures which is really sort of a very different from uh, other forms and stuff like that and, and uh just sort of an interesting observation, I guess you could say, on, on the New Age uh, world. So I guess talk a little bit about that, and that'll that'll sort of be the perfect bridge for us to get into the European right. stuff.
2: Well, the thing is that I uh, was talking about that because when I would be making European trips and, and giving talks, going to conferences and things, uh, I, of course, always go to museums and uh, made God knows how many trips, and looking at um, the things that... Appealed to me, I realized that, uh, Egyptian art was very, uh, of course very monumental, very stiff, very formal, eyes straight ahead, arms at the side of the striding figures and so forth. And, um, it was all sort of oriented towards the, towards the, the, the afterlife. But it was, it was very rigid and in a certain sense it's, uh, it, it always brought to mind to me the idea that these things were, were made by slaves and for the for the glory of the gods and the pharaohs and so forth and the priests uh, and the more I saw of Greek art uh, which uh, showed people in much more normal casual poses and was obviously much more sensual there's almost no uh, real sexuality in in uh, Egyptian art, but the Greek sculpture seemed much more lifelike this, and of course the temples were, were absolutely beautiful, uh, they weren't as ponderous as the Egyptian temples, and I began to gravitate towards towards that, and I realized that as I'm going towards uh, Greek sculpture, Greek art, Greek architecture, and away from Egyptian and uh, of course the Mayan is, is also sort of ominous looking. I realized that uh, the essentially uh, New Age people tend to stick with Egypt, and uh, which they see as the font of everything. Everything came from uh, ancient Egypt, and that's where all the mysteries are. And uh, there, there was a, a complete kind of, of willingness to turn away from, from Greece. And um, it's to me, it, it sort of boiled down to a kind of turning away from the sensuality and uh, richness and pleasures of everyday life uh, and turning towards in Egypt uh, an idea of some sort of afterlife or uh, golden age or whatever. Um, so as I was looking at things, uh, I began to understand that Many New Age people really require incredible mysteries that cannot be easily fathomed, and that's what they see in Egyptian art. Yeah. Uh, and the rigidity of it, and the coldness of it, because I do think Egyptian art is cold. The coldness of it, or most of it, of course has an uncomfortable resemblance in my mind with the coldness of alien behavior and alien appearance. Uh, the non-sensual, non-sexual, non-human, non-emotional coldness that is so often reported in UFO abductions.
1: Yeah. So I guess then we'll move in now to the UFO realm Mm -hmm. of your career here. And as you note in the book, the 1964 UFO sighting that you had on the Cape really sort of kicked off your interest in UFOs. But I want to move back further uh, backward into your life uh, to an observation that you made that I never really considered. First of all, I found it really amazing and cool that you were around for the original War of the Worlds broadcast, which is obviously legendary and infamous even to this day. And and you make the remarkable observation that the War of the Worlds broadcast sort of, well, you say it inoculated you against taking UFO reports seriously, and I think you sort of extend that out to the greater populace as well.
2: Absolutely. I I don't think there's any doubt about it that, the, uh, the long-term results of the uh, broadcast really included the idea that people were not going to listen to any anything that sounded like a sort of extraterrestrial experience of any sort, because having been burnt once, they were not going to be burnt twice. And it, instead of increasing an interest in the subject, it, it, it uh, poured uh, ice water on an interest. And uh, I think that was, I mean, it was certainly my experience, but I think it was the experience of people at the time. What was so interesting to find is that uh, this poll that, uh, I don't know who, who exactly had taken the poll, but Jerome Clark is the one who discovered this, uh, that was taken in 1947 uh, at the end of the year, and they asked people what they thought of the UFO phenomenon, uh, which is, of course... Being widely reported there, and what was behind it, and and everybody said things like misidentifications and Russian scouts and one damn thing after another, and uh, fewer than one percent, which was statistically insignificant then, said that they thought it might be extraterrestrial. Like the whole country, according to that poll, uh, heard about UFOs and read about them, but uh, thought there was nothing to them.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to so, think about. So I think
2: that's that's the proof of the pudding about my my observation about uh, the uh, war of the world's broadcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I said, I'd never really even thought about that till I read the book, because uh, obviously a lot of people sort of um, attribute that to, as a sort of test in a way to see how the population would react to that sort of situation. But I never really considered the fallout um, in the way no. that you did. These notes here for the, uh, for the UFO material and abduction research, a little more scattershot. So I, I uh, forgive me for that in a sense. Um, First of all, I guess, talk a little bit about sort of how you transitioned from an interest in straight-up UFOs into the abduction stuff. Because everybody knows you you broke the ground, really, with abduction research. And, and there, it wasn't like nowadays when someone would have an interest in UFOs and then it would turn into abductions. With you, it just sort of like led that way. And there wasn't really too many guideposts along the way, except for maybe the Betty and Barney Hill case. And uh, another one you cite, but it's like you know you were really breaking ground there with with uh, with even looking into the abduction part of it.
2: Well, there were other people looking into it um, too, and uh, Ray Fowler being one that was doing mm-hmm. very fine work, still does. But the point is that uh, well, at the time that I got involved in the Obarski case, that was 1975. Uh, the landing in observed by. Uh, witnesses in, uh, New Jersey right across the Hudson River from Manhattan. Uh, that was the first case I ever investigated, looked into. It was, it was really the, the, the fulcrum turn <laughs> on which things turned. But the point is that I knew at that point and had accepted, I'd come to accept the Betty Barney Hill case. And also the Pascagoula case. So those are about the only cases I knew anything about. So by that time I was already, even though I didn't know that much about it, I was aware that these things had been reported and they seemed very believable to me. But, that, but they hadn't at first. But by that time, 75, uh, they did seem believable. So when I wrote an article for the Village Voice, uh, about the, this Obarski case, uh, the New York newspaper, and there was a lot of, uh, subsequent coverage. And we did some radio, I did some radio, uh, call-in programs, uh, which was all new to me. I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing exactly, but there I was. And, uh, because my name was given in the article, of course, and, uh, George's name too, uh, and address, at least the area where he lived, uh, we started getting letters and I got, started getting letters and, and call-ins on these programs from people who were describing initially something very much like what George had seen. Uh, and I use an example that the man called in and said he'd seen something very much like that. It was right above his car and his car stopped and he said, uh, but we didn't see the thing leave and, uh, He's, you know it's like was thirty or forty feet above his car, and it didn't he didn't see it leave, which anybody would have, of course <laughs> yeah. been staring at it you know and uh they found his, he got home very late, you know, and so uh I began getting some of these cases these descriptions that the people weren't really describing as uh, abductions, they just didn't know what happened and why. Uh, the time passed without their being able to recall, it. and and very often these things have not remembering how the thing ended, the experience of seeing the object, yeah. and so from that I began to infer that, well, maybe these things are abductions, you know, because they seem to uh, uh, they seem to have some of the of the guidelines that uh, had appeared in the Hill case and the Pascale case. So I just started looking into them. I wasn't seeking out abductions, but, uh, because I knew about those two cases, at least, and I think I'd heard of a couple of others, uh, in 1975, uh, I, uh, began taking these things seriously, potentially these reports, and it began to uncover one after another of, uh, abductions, uh, because I was able to get some friends who were psychiatrists and psychologists to do hypnosis for me yeah uh, to help fill in the missing time and so I in a certain sense I uh, I didn't set out to, to discover anything with this uh, but I just got I followed where the uh, uh, data led and that's what I began stumbling into and that's and I'm still stumbling <laughs> the work goes on the cause endures the hope still lives and the dream shall never die.
1: You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
2: The work begins anew. The hope rises again.
0: And the dream lives on.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable to look back on it and see how it developed that way because you didn't just jump in and were like, you know, you know, I'm all about abductions. It was like, you know, they kind of fell into your lap and next thing you know, you were the abduction guy. So
2: yeah, well, you know, one of the things is, is that in the way I, I structured the book, I wanted to go back to spend more time with these really early cases because I wanted to get the reader sort of in the position that I had been in and to see exactly how uh, I approached it how my mind was working and to sort of hope the reader would go through the same process, uh, of, um, you know, of, of questioning and trying to put two and two together and so forth. So, uh, some of those early cases are, you know, an attempt, uh, putting them there. It's not just a matter of, uh, of simple recollection and all that, but it was, it was like an attempt to, uh, to lead the person who's new to this. Uh, through from A to B to C and so on, because that's the way it happened to me.
0: Yeah, and you do
1: a masterful job. Uh, as I said, uh, you really sort of uh, lay out the story of how it all happened, which is what the book really is. And that's that's really what I enjoy. And, and you know, we need more people to write these kind of books, more people like you who have been in the field for so long and were trailblazers and groundbreakers so we can understand how this, this history of the phenomenon unfolded, because, uh, you know, that stuff's getting lost, I think, over time, and, uh, we need more people to write memoirs, so I, I well, hand off to you for that.
2: Well, I think that's true, and, and, you know, um I mean, my friend David Jacobs is up here in Wellfleet right now with his family, and, uh, just as an example, uh, when David writes about the hybrid phenomenon, which I, I also wrote about in, uh, Sight Unseen, and you have this whole absolutely off-the-wall subject of uh, these transgenic beings wandering around that are part human and part alien, uh, you think, my God, that's the as craziest, as wildest as science fiction thing. And yet, if you go back and see the way that that's sort of the end point of a process that started 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, yeah. in, in terms of, of what we've discovered about it, you can see that you have to go back to the beginning and I didn't do anything much in the book about some of the later aspects of the phenomenon just because I wanted to concentrate on uh how how people are led into this, how I was led into it. It would be great if, if uh David Jacobs would write a memoir, uh I've talked to him about it because uh you know, when I first met him he thought that uh uh in nineteen eighty one he thought that Abductions were ridiculous. Yeah, where he is now.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: And it's just because of the it's what's the way the evidence led him. You know, you're 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 dragged by the damn data into this, and you're stuck with it. I think I pointed out that when I wrote about the uh, in, uh, intruders, about the whole process of of uh, abductions and people, women finding themselves pregnant, and then re-abduction, and uh, they're suddenly not pregnant, and then they have these abduction experiences, quote unquote, dreams, whatever, where they are shown a small baby or a small toddler that is half alien, and half human. I was writing about this in Intruders and I was getting roundly attacked by all the biologists who said you can't get a hybrid. Uh, you can't, uh, hybrids don't work. That, uh, a, a male cell and a female cell from different species are not going to create a, a living being. But I'm saying, But I've got all this data. All these people are reporting the same damn thing. Uh So what do I do about it? You know, I can't scrap the data because you're telling me it's impossible. Exactly. But that's what they were really asking. And of course, uh, when the genome was uh, mapped and uh, people began to do gene splicing, suddenly we had a new theory and the new theory supported the idea that these creatures could exist. So it was, you know, it was kind of for me a, a wonderful way of, of proving to myself, and I hope to other people, that if if you've got the data, you have to explain the data, whatever your damn theory is. If the theory contradicts the data, tough luck.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, hopefully, it seems like maybe science is starting to catch up with ufology uh, for yeah. a change. So. Hopefully, uh, that, that'll continue onward. Now, this is kind of a speculative question, but I'm sure you've pondered it yourself, and I presume mm-hmm. probably somebody's asked you this before, but I want to know your opinion. You know, we had Ann Druffle on the show uh, back in February, and she was mm-hmm. sort of talking about how the abduction reports and stuff really sort of exploded in the 70s and stuff. And, of course, everybody knows about uh, the Contact E period of ufology. Yeah. And, of course, you know, the veracity of that notwithstanding um, – I find it hard to believe that 100% of all contactee stories are false. So the question is, there's really a stark line between the contactee era and the abduction era. What do you think is behind that transition from contactees to abductees?
2: Well, I think the origin of the two uh, phenomena uh, are so different, the origins. Uh, For instance, as far as I'm concerned, the the abduction uh, phenomenon developed out of reports that were made privately and in confidence and very nervously by the people who were having the experiences, Yeah. looking for no publicity or exactly the opposite, and who were really bewildered by what happened. And so in a certain sense, it came about in a very slow and, again, data-driven way, uh, and the people were automatically seen like the hills and the Pascalula people and so forth as as really believable people, but uh, the way the contact thing started was after you had the uFO uh, waves coming in in forty seven forty eight and forty nine and so forth. yeah, I think a lot of people who were either motivated by uh, money and and the idea of it of cheap fame by saying, oh, I don't know what those things are. I can tell you all about them. I've been on one. I went to Venus, you know. Yeah. Or the, on the other hand, uh, people who were mentally unbalanced, who we run into in the abduction field uh, from time to time too, had convinced themselves that these things had happened to them, but they didn't come about uh, through shy, quiet, nervous people trying to look for answers. They were people who already had the answers that they were going to, uh, uh, share with people for a, for a fee. Uh, Dave Jacobs talks about the, the guy who, uh, used to sell little packets of dog hair from the, uh, um, for five dollars, uh, from the hair of a, of a Venusian dog. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the whole thing was so filled with, with, uh, fraud and deceit and craziness and delusion. Yeah. Uh, and it was so deliberately public. I mean, the idea that there could be a great rock, uh, Devil's Rock, whatever it's called, um, festival of abductees is crazy. I and mean, nobody wanted to get in a, in a room and be seen as an abductee, yeah. you know. And yet here are all these people driving out into the desert to hear the, uh, the words from on high from what our space brothers had told them. And so I, I think, uh, it, when you say, uh, 100% uh, contactees, you know, can't be all crazy or fraudulent or something. Yeah. I think what you have to realize is that people come forward with messages or with experiences of one sort or another that seem more in the contactee field. I think those experiences have to be looked at and they have to be looked at in the context of there being more to those experiences Then the person is consciously remembering. And therefore, these experiences may turn out to be more of a, of a typical abduction than it would seem. I mean, that's, that's been the the situation in my experience. As an example, a woman came to me, uh, I'll try to make it real short. Young woman, she had been abducted, but everything was wonderful. She loved the, the, uh, UFO occupants and so forth. And they had been very helpful because they had, uh, she had been in a hotel room with her uh, her lover, who was an older man who'd had a heart attack or something at some point. And the um, aliens came in, but uh, they were very different. Uh, one of them was actually her mother, who had died. Oh, wow. And uh, who came over to her and so forth. And there was another um, a female who was the deceased ex-wife of her boyfriend. At any rate, these wonderful... Aliens came over, and um, she, the abductee, was kind of amazed because her mother started scolding her, and she didn't look exactly like her mother, but almost scolding her, and um, took her over to a mirror, and she was looking into the mirror, and it was as if her mother was telling her, "You've got to change your life, be a better person, and so on and so forth." And so, all this was a very good thing, and they were uh, they were telling her they were going to help heal this man's heart. And he was terrified too, sitting up right in bed. But anyway, it's a very complicated story. But when we did hypnosis, and she had really intense belief that this is the way it happened. Yeah. When we did hypnosis, uh, the aliens came in, and oddly enough, they didn't really look like her mother <laughs> or the ex-wife. They looked like the regular aliens. Yeah. And uh, she said, "There's something about under hypnosis. There's something about my boyfriend's health." Uh, she said they're going to help, or she said, "No, no, I'm begging them to help with his heart." The, 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 the whole issue of the healing came from her. She's begging them then, telepathically. But then her mother comes over to her. Uh, not her mother; it's an alien. And is taking her up to the mirror, but all of a sudden she, with horror, she says, "It's not the mirror; it's the window. <laughs> We're going out to a UFO, which is hovering outside." So the whole thing changed slowly,
0: you yeah, know. Yeah.
2: It is something was. So what I'm saying about when you hear a, a, a contactee story or something, you know, unless it's the person is patently crazy or uh, money-grubbing or something, you have to assume that there might be more to this, you know, and it's worth looking into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like perhaps we hadn't refined the research techniques enough back in the 50s and 60s when the contactees were going on to oh. actually understand that they were really abductions all along.
2: There certainly must have been abduction. Well, we know there were abductions at the time. Uh, the earliest uh, abduction cases I've ever dealt with, uh, two elderly women separately, the two different cases, who uh, were both abducted uh, in the 1920s. Oh, wow. They're good cases, too. And I've certainly worked with a number of people from the 30s and 40s that had the abductions as children, you know. Yeah. So so the point is, it's been going on. This is some kind of uh, just recent post-war Kind of a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So how we have no way of knowing how those things were, were sort of, uh, uh, well, how, how they were remembered by people at the time, how much screen memory was going on, and so forth.
0: Exactly. So
2: uh, that's one of the things when you begin to sense that there's more to a story that somebody's telling you, contactee or not, about some odd, even just a sighting, uh, some of these. Things that are just sightings, the person remembers them that way, but they're just things that begin to come out in the way they're talking about the sighting that make you think, well, something else happened. It wasn't just that.
1: Yeah. You make the note in the book that the title of your first book, Missing Time, has become part of the lexicon of yeah of uh, the esoteric world, which is really kind of neat and cool, and I'm sure that it is a, a source of pride for you, and I'd be tremendously proud if I had that kind of influence on the field. Another sort of uh, phraseology uh, that you talk about in the book is uh, confirmation anxiety. Talk a little yep. bit about that, because I found that really particularly interesting and a, a unique observation that you made that I'm sure is also kind of part of the lexicon now.
2: Well, it's uh, that's a little more obscure, but at any rate, um, what I meant by confirmation anxiety is that when a, a person who's had Dutch experiences finds out that, in fact, It seems absolutely incontrovertible that the experience did happen to them. Outside witnesses turn up or some kind of evidence. Instead of celebrating and saying, you see, I was right all along or something like that, it's, oh my God, it really, really happened. And it's a shock. They don't like it. They don't like that kind of confirmation because most people want to put an abduction experience on some kind of mental shelf which is really saying maybe it didn't really happen after all, maybe there is some explanation or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to face this coldly that, yes, I was in this ship, and I was put on this table and this and that happened. So uh, as an example, I mentioned in the book that uh, I have f- uh, samples from 45 different people of um, some kinds of symbols, the notational system, writing, or whatever you might want to call it. Uh, which are extraordinarily similar, in some cases identical, from 45 different people. Uh, and these are symbols that they have seen inside a ship in some way or other. Mm-hmm. And I had, I, I just don't do this anymore, but, uh, at one point I was working with a woman, uh, a young African American woman who had had a missing time experience and, and all kinds of things connected with it and, and it was clearly an abduction, and we had done a hypnotic regression. And um, I had just asked her under hypnosis, "Did she see any?" As she looked around, I said, "Do you see anything that looks like writing anyplace?" I said, "Maybe you do, maybe you don't." You know? Yeah. No, she did see something. And uh, I said, "Well, you you look at that." She said, "She saw several marks, symbols. Didn't know what they meant." Because uh, nobody knows what this, this means, so I said, "Take a good look, and then afterwards you can you can draw them for me." So we went on, and after the, we were finished, um, she drew them for me, and uh, they matched I had in the a, uh, the a portfolio of, that I put together of other samples. Interesting. And I went upstairs, and uh, I was in the lower studio. I went to my low, upper studio and got this thing, which I shouldn't have done, and I brought it down, <laughs> and I just opened it up and showed her these others, and her eyes hit that page, and she burst into tears, and she jumped up, and she started to run out of the room. Oh, wow. And we had to bring her back and calm her down, and... Well, that's a classic case of confirmation anxiety. Confirmation was just the worst thing she could possibly would happen so i don't do that anymore with anybody <laughs> not that i did it very often i did it with one other person I had the same result okay uh so that's that's what that means but it, it just it's another sign that, that the people who have these experiences are do not want them to be real
1: yeah yeah now we had bruce rucks on the show a few weeks ago and he's a big proponent of the et as robot hypothesis being that, you know, uh, these entities that perform the abductions perhaps might be robots. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you do make the point in the book about how sometimes they do make mistakes, notably when they, uh, re I guess, redress uh, the abductees yeah. and, and they put the shirts on backwards and put the earrings on backwards and stuff like that, which is almost consistent, I guess, perhaps with the idea that maybe they are robots because they're making these mistakes that you would think that the aliens if there's some kind of higher intelligence, wouldn't make. Although, then again, you know, we're, we're, we're a pretty primitive culture to them, I'm sure, so they probably wouldn't understand earrings. But what do you think of the idea of the abductors as robots or in some way, and also, you know, that whole idea that they make these mistakes during the abductions?
2: Well, you know, I, I tend not to uh, try to say exactly what they're constituted of, or where they come from, or anything like that, yeah. because we don't know. It's what a word Alien is uh, useful because it doesn't denote anything except what something isn't.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I uh, remember, I've quoted this a number of times, uh, a UFO researcher once said that he did not believe uh, the UFO occupants were extraterrestrial because they're not doing what extraterrestrials would do. Which I thought was one of the most bizarre things to say, <laughs> yeah. because who knows what a, an unknown would do? Uh, you say, "Okay, we're positing that they are uh, unknown. <laughs> so, what are its uh, the, their limits? Uh, what are their skills? What are their, I mean, we don't. It, none of that is is really possible to uh, state with any authority. So, I don't know. Uh, people, there have been um, uh, some. Uh, People theorizing, uh, uh that, that some of the figures are, are, uh, more robotic and, uh, uh, I know, uh, Charlie Hickson in, in his abduction thought of the three figures as being robotic, that him and Parker Board. But I don't really know. As a matter of fact, I just don't think that it's, it's worth spending the time to worry the, uh, the subject because we don't know how we're going to ever find out.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair uh, enough.
1: Of course, you know, you've uh, done a lot of work and talked about these, uh, and another sort of phraseology that's part of the lexicon, uh, let's hope more and more, the presentation memories, which is when, you know, these women who've had their babies taken uh, then are reintroduced, I guess you could say, to the babies later on down the line. Now, when these sort of things happen, is that a one time occurrence or do they continue throughout, you know, the hybrid's lifetime and the abductees' experiences?
2: Yeah, well that's a very good question. I have two cases where there seems to have been a second presentation, but I think as a rule I, I, I don't I'm not getting reports that they they get a second look. Uh they may make the person feel they're gonna see the the child or the baby again, but uh Uh, That doesn't seem to happen uh, except in just a couple of cases. It's interesting to me that I think that the aliens believe when this uh, bonding takes place and they hand the child or the baby to the uh, putative mother to hold or whatnot, I think they believe that there's something uh, innately uh, uh, helpful in the human touch that needs to be done. It just seems that it's the only reason they seem to do this. Yeah. You know, I can't think of any other reason, because uh, it, what it does to the, uh, to the mother, uh, if, if, of course, this person is the mother, but uh, what it does to the mother, of course, is to create all kinds of, of emotional cross-currents, which are really powerful. So it doesn't really help the mother in any way. So then you have to assume, well, it must be somehow instead for the, uh, the child. Uh, so it must be something that the aliens feel the child gains by.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but
2: we really don't know, uh, you know, what the mechanics of all this are.
1: Makes you think about adoptees and and their, uh, yep. you know, how some adoptees go through that quest to find their real parents. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: It's uh, it's uh, there are overlaps, no doubt about it.
1: And then uh, sort of in keeping with the emailer who asked for more stories, I'm going to ask you to tell the Shirley MacLaine story because it was just amazing. You know, obviously I'd like you to tell the story, and, and I just found it really interesting, and maybe you can elucidate a little more on this when you tell the story, but I just found it really amazing that these high-powered politicians were even hanging around with Shirley MacLaine in this hotel room. It almost feels like the whole scene where uh, she had you and and – um, I believe, like, the first woman to really talk about the whole Kathy, presentation. Um, yes, Kathy. Kathy, uh, yeah. It almost felt like this thing was orchestrated in a way. You know, why was she even hanging around with all these high-powered politicians? And then all of a sudden, you know, she has you guys brought up, and, of course, you know, her reaction to the whole thing is just, uh, just sad, I guess, is the best way right. to put it.
2: Uh, well, I, I tell you what, I, I'd rather skip the exact... Uh, uh, thing that, that occurred with, uh, with, uh, Kathy, uh, and McLean, uh, and, and jumped to the part of the question about why they were there. That's fine. And I think that, uh, I, I don't see anything, uh, you know, out of keeping. The basic point was, uh, that, uh, even though Bella Obsuck was there, the, uh, and she was a congresswoman at that point from New York City, uh, Shirley McLean was in Washington, where, of course, these some of these people lived, they worked there, and uh, she had a tremendous following, still does. The important uh, senator there, um, Claiborne Pell from Rhode Island, head of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, he has been interested, had been, I mean, he's passed away, he'd been interested in the subject very intensely and in esoteric subjects in general. And I had a couple of, uh, uh, occasions to talk to him, and, uh, he was extremely interested in the subject. So, uh, since she had written about, uh, the EOFO subject in, in some sort of cockamamie way, I have to say, <laughs> but, uh, since she had done that and, uh, uh, was of course deeply involved in, uh, esoteric issues, it would be very natural for him to be there because he was drawn to this. Mm-hmm. And the um, uh, retired uh, naval officer uh, was, uh, at that point, his uh, chief of staff. And the other very important man, a European, is a man who has been extremely interested in the UFO subject and was a very good friend of uh, Senator Pell. And this that man, incidentally, who, who still wants his anonymity maintained, I sent him a copy of the book and he uh, wrote me a very very nice letter back. So his being there was was not uh, mysterious in any way. I don't think there was any there wasn't any sense that there was anything military about this or intelligence and Bella Obseg was a fiery kind of anti well government handout she was yeah. uh, would reject in a second. So I don't think there was anything, uh, mysterious about that gathering. If it had happened in South Dakota, yes, but Washington, where most of them lived, you know, was not a surprise. Okay. But McLean's behavior, which is, I'd rather not go into, uh, let people read this. And incidentally, I should point out when you mention, uh, uh, people should buy the book, which I wholeheartedly <laughs> support. Um, <laughs> The book is, uh, is best ordered from Amazon.com or, uh, you can go into, like, Barnes & Noble and ask them to order it, that kind of thing. But it's not on the shelves in bookstores. It's a small publisher, so Amazon's the best way to get at it.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's fine. I, you know, you, we have to leave some stuff here for the book anyway. So, and people yeah. should definitely read the book just for that story alone. Uh, not well, just—it's ca-
2: also complicated. To yeah, tell, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. We want to cover as much as we can here in the yeah. in the conversation. Now, one thing I really enjoyed uh, was your interaction with Carl Sagan and your response to the refrain of the skeptics: "Extraordinary." Claims require extraordinary evidence, and you came up with the retort to that, which is the quantity of evidence behind this extraordinary phenomenon requires an extraordinary investigation. And took the tact that I've been sort of endorsing for a while, and I was happy to read, you know, later on when you talked about Leslie's press conference in 2007, she sort of took the same tact as well. Yes. In that, you know, I just feel like, uh, you know, ufology, for lack of a better term, really sort of needs a PR. Uh, shift and needs a PR change where we have to stop trying to convince people that this is real, and just convince them to give it a chance.
2: Exactly, that's that's where you start. And you see, no scientist can really say, well, uh, I don't think we should do an investigation. You know, and and because uh, you you say, well, on what grounds are you saying that? Well, uh, there isn't anything to this. There's no evidence. You don't know the evidence, you know, etc. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of a a catch-22. You can back them into, but uh, this is where I have these uh, tremendous problems with uh, the uh, quote-unquote disclosure people, Mm -hmm. who are insisting that the government announce that the extraterrestrials are are here, instead of saying, instead of the government announcing, we got a problem here that's better be looked into. Uh, that 's an easy one to to sell to somebody, but just to try to sell the idea that uh the extraterrestrials are here and the government there 's a government cover up that 's been going on for years, all of which is may well be true, of course, but you can 't really sell that to uh uh you know the New York Times or whatever
1: exactly exactly, and it may even be more palatable for the government if we phrased it that way because then oh, may- yeah
2: I think that I think that the government likes nothing better than uh some of the exopolitics uh stuff that's being handed around where they'll have a press conference and announce in Washington to the Washington Post that uh there's a, uh, an advanced uh, culture uh civilization living on Mars underground as if this is fa- a fact. And, you know, you can have the Washington Post do what it does. They just laugh uproariously at this. And somehow, you know, you you could almost think that these are just disformation agents doing this to us, you know, from within our own camp.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It just – it's frustrating because you want to say to these people, you know, you're selling a damaged bill of goods to people and and it's going to catch up with you because if you can't prove what you're saying, then they're going to discount it wholeheartedly. Yeah and it would be much easier if we just sort of rephrased the whole issue.
2: Absolutely. You if if you could say if you could present uh, enough reasons why an investigation should be made and certainly that material exists and Leslie incidentally is is working on a book right now which is going to be dynamite on the subject you know from high level witnesses and uh, military people and, and government uh Authorities and so forth who have been in other countries working on the UFO project for years. It's really Dramatic stuff, but the point is that if you can persuade people that uh, oh, The evidence exists and that's it got to be looked into That's one thing but if you try to if what your goal is as with some of the exopolitics types Is that you've got to persuade them? that extraterrestrials are flying around and they've they've come here and the government knows about it and is covering it up. You're trying to get them to accept your particular answer to the mystery rather than trying to sell them on the existence of the mystery to start with.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, now what do you think needs to be done to sort of change that perspective, kind of like what, what Leslie did with the press conference where you just leave oh, absolutely. the answer That's- hanging?
2: That's one of the first things, and I think her book is going to be one of the major things, because <clears throat> many of the people who are at the press conference are contributing to the book. The book is a collection of, of uh, contributions from. Uh, I think she'll she'll have three or four generals in it, and uh, you know it's a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, so uh, it's it's due to be published next summer. Awesome. But it's uh, going to be uh, quite a book, and I think. I think that's the kind of thing that you cannot read. Nobody, objective uh, in mind, could read that book and not think, Jesus, there's something going on here that we better (laughs) damn well look into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. that's the goal. Now, you were at the ground floor of uh, abductions, and obviously you saw uh, the explosion of abductions in, for lack of a better term, popularity in the mainstream media. What do you think of how they've been portrayed over the last 30 years uh, you know, not just in entertainment, but also, you know, in the news and stuff like that.
2: Well, it's the toughest sell, obviously, to present this. Uh, and I think that when I first got involved in this, I would guess that uh, the, the fewer than 10% of the UFO researchers who took UFOs seriously uh, thought there was anything to abductions. I mean, David Jacobs being a good example. Mm-hmm. And probably now, I think in the polls, the numbers are up like in the the 30s, 30% uh, believe across the country that UFO abductions are taking place. Uh, I'd like to see a really good poll on that taken. But uh, so in other words, it's, it's a slow incremental growth. And one of the great things, of course, about television is that you're looking at faces and listening to voices and you're making up your mind whether that person seems to be a liar or telling the truth or mentally ill or whatnot. And so many of these programs, I think, have had a tremendous effect, a positive effect. And, of course, some of the um, debunkers who turn up on these programs are so unpleasant or goofy-looking or whatever (laughs) uh, that, you know, it's hard to be sympathetic. And it's also hard to be sympathetic with somebody who spent his life saying no to something. Yeah. You wonder why in the world, what a way to live. But I think that, uh, uh on the whole, uh, it's, it's been a really tough slog with this. And I've, I've certainly gotten some pretty bad knocks. I mean, the, uh, uh, the Peter Jennings thing was awful because of all the absolute promises they made to me about what would be included, including, uh, my statements about sleep paralysis and all of it was cut and abductions were uh, not quite ridiculed, but almost. And um so, you know, you get some, some lucky ones sometimes, but some, uh, I think it's a very uncomfortable subject for everybody concerned. I mean, certainly uncomfortable for any abductees to come forward, and I've been telling people not to do it, you know, if, if they're asked. Uh, matter of fact, I turned down one recently. Uh, they wanted me to rustle up some abductees so they could, you know, make a program. Sure. Uh, I said it's not going to work, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think I think that slowly, it's 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 been only an uphill. I mean, it's only been a, a gain.
1: Obviously, as I said just now, you're on the ground floor of the abduction thing, and and you know, uh, David Jacobs, and of course, Dr. John Mack, who we lost a few years ago. Uh, how do you think the the field of abduction research has evolved over the last 30 years? And do you think it's headed in the right direction? Do you think it's, you know, refined its approach in a positive way? And, on in, and you know, what's your perspective on how things have changed? Because in a weird way, of course, you're going to know who is, uh, you know, the next generation of yeah. Bud Hopkins and John Mack and, and David Jacobs. But we haven't, at least as far as where I'm sitting and, and where people who are sort of Interested in the paranormal, but look at all the different subjects and stuff. We haven't seen that breakout uh, researcher just yet,
2: as far well, as I can tell. Uh, that's one of the problems. I have to agree that uh, <clears throat> that's what should be visible and doesn't seem to be. I know a few people, and um, in um, New York, uh, there's a man who who is good, and uh, but we don't have enough people willing to do this. And, of course, the professional mental health community – doesn't like to do anything that's going to besmirch their reputation, and also they don't like to do pro bono work, and uh, so it, it's been it's been difficult to get good people. There are there are some people around, uh, younger people, but um, this is an area where we haven't been very successful. I have to say, in uh, training new people, it's yeah. unfortunate.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to just keep an eye out for the next. Yeah. Uh, the next generation here of of you guys who were really on the ground floor of this now, looking at how your interpretation and research into the abduction phenomenon itself has evolved, you know I mean you didn't really sort of uncover this whole hybrid aspect of it until you know later on into your research into the into the phenomenon
0: mm-hmm. has anything
1: sort of new turned up in the last few years as far as you know where this next step might be going with the abductions, because, like I said, you started out with just pure abductions, and then it yeah. turned into the reproduction stuff. So, do we know where the next part is, or have well, it emerged?
2: Well, I think that the, the the really next thing is is the presence of these transgenic beings here on Earth. I think that's the that's the next step, and we have no idea how widespread that is. David Jacobs is, of course. Uh, been working very diligently in that area. It's a pretty spooky damn thing to be working on, too. Absolutely. I think that's, that's where the discoveries are going to be made and the battles waged, actually. So I don't know what that's going to turn into. And none of us do, but it's, it's, it's looking more ominous than not ominous, that's for sure.
1: Hey, that's for sure, absolutely. Now, Abductions and abduction research sort of uh, was born, obviously, out of the UFO phenomenon. But uh, I just came into this in the last like six years, and, and it mm-hmm. seems like the abduction field stands apart from UFO field in a little bit, and, in a way that maybe that wasn't the case when it first came along. Um, what's your take on that whole thing? Is just on a sociological level that you know now abduction research stands alone. You know, side by side with UFO research, where before it was sort of on the peripheral of UFOs.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I I still see the whole thing as so interconnected. But, uh, I mean, the the issues of, of sightings, of course, are still, uh, which really was the essential uh, area of investigation many years ago. Uh, that's still extraordinarily important. And,. Uh, This is the kind of thing that uh, Leslie Kane has been working on and her book will deal with. It's not going to deal with abductions or anything like that, but the point is that that will continue, and I think that uh, abductions are sort of part of the whole scene. It's uh, it's hard for me to separate things out, but, but the point is abductions are the one place where we really have a huge amount of information what we've learned from sightings in terms of information is uh, is very slight we just got more more sightings and, uh, and more reports of their incredible maneuverability and so forth but with abductions we for the first time we learned what this is about and what the inside looks like and what the beings look like and so forth so um it's where our, it's a source of our real information now.
1: Yeah. Now let me throw some sort of short-point little thoughts at you. What about the whole idea, the conspiracy theory that the government, you know, is in cahoots with the ETs and they allow the abductions to go on and then it got out of hand and all that kind of thing?
2: Well, I, I have all kinds of problems with conspiracy theories in general. <laughs> and, of course, one of the basic rules in conspiracy thinking is to assume that the enemy, whoever it is, in this case we'll say the government, is uh, practically omnipotent, could do what it wants to do. You know, nobody has a, a conspiracy theory about some foe that's a, c- a complete uh, klutz doing everything wrong and screwing up, like the CIA with uh, the Bay of Pigs and you name all the rest of it. Uh, so it seems to me that one of the things, of course, behind the idea of the government being involved in cahoots and all this is that uh, – Somehow the government is so powerful that they can tell the abductors not to take any more people, and then uh, somehow the abductors uh, renege on the promise. Which, uh, to me, the whole that whole idea is just really foolish. The one thing we do know about the UFO phenomenon, for sure, is that it can pretty much do what it wants to do. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have obstacles. It's pretty close to being omnipotent, and uh the one thing we know about the government is that it isn't omnipotent; it totally screws up. One of the things I was like was uh when Eisenhower was elected president, apparently Harry Truman said he's not going to like being president because he's used to the army, and he said as, uh, in the Army you give a command and it's carried out, and as president, you give a command, and nothing happens, <laughs> but somebody added to that. <laughs> Trouble with Truman is he, and that remark is that he completely overestimated the efficiency of the army, which I think is the, is the point. Yeah. <laughs> Things don't happen in the army that well, that efficiently either. And uh, so I just, I, I mean, I, I just can't think that there's uh, some sort of high level connection, and I, I just can't imagine what that would be about. And, you know, there's no sign anywhere that we have any real great advances in technology thanks to reverse engineering, which I'm sure is going on. But I think reverse engineering is probably tremendously difficult simply because they are so far ahead of us. Like Stan Friedman said, what would General Grant have done during the Civil War if he'd come upon the wreckage of a crashed MiG jet fighter? you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I
2: I think they've gotten the thing to go. You know, he wouldn't have known what's what's the first step. But the point is, you know, part of this was foisted on us by uh, Colonel Corso in in a book which is, as far as I'm concerned, a uh, one long uh, fantasy by somebody who is just a little man who wanted to give himself attention uh, because according to his book, he actually saved the world. He saved the planet. And uh, I've gotten into this a long time ago with Corso. The idea to me is that reverse engineering probably started in 1947 uh, at the time of uh, Roswell. And according to of course Corso, if you believe him, you have to say they didn't do anything. They sat around for something like uh, 17 years until his commanding officer handed him this box of space junk and said, here, of course, I'll see what you could do with this.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: and thereupon he saved the world. Well, I mean, reverse engineering—I'm sure is—I'm uh, sure the attempts have been made, but the point is that we don't seem to have any great advance. Uh, we don't have anything that uh, I mean, we didn't have anything that could locate uh, Osama or any. You know, I, I yeah. don't want to get into this because it, it's always a. a, a place where I get, get angry. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you to get angry. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, what about the whole alien implant thing? I was uh, surprised. I, you may have mentioned it, but I don't recall any, any reference to the alien implant theory uh, in the book. So what's your take on that whole yeah,
2: aspect? I di- well, I didn't, uh, I didn't go into that. No, I do think that uh, there uh, certainly there are, there are implants. And we have, I mean, I have x-rays of, of uh, implants inside the heads of, two different people in a way they couldn't have been put in place. But the problem is and uh, despite all the work that's been done in that field, I think that we still don't have an object which meets the criteria of what science would demand uh, something that could not have been made on earth. yeah and that's that's a problem. Roger Lear's done a lot of work on this but it's, it's perhaps not something that's that's final the smoking gun, but I do believe the implants are not put in place regularly.
1: Before I do what's next for you, I guess, is just the sweeping sort of, what do you think's coming down the line here for the UFO phenomenon and abductions, and do you think we're going to see any sort of answer to all this, you know, at any point
2: <laughs> well those are several questions that are interesting I've always been a, a bad predictor of the future here so uh, as a, a friend uh, an old uh, comic said he was he's been a bad gambler and he's had a stroke of bad luck ever since he bet on the German army in World War one you know? <laughs> so I don't try to Predict the future—it's hard to know, okay. and uh, it will surprise us. Uh, I mean, the phenomenon will surprise us. I—I uh, I, I don't like the way it looks; like it's heading. Uh, I mean, just in terms of these beings on the grounds, you know, with us, yeah, you're running around on Earth, driving cars, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, that's kind of scary. So, uh, not knowing what what's going to happen to research—it's—it just. It's very, very difficult to, uh, to nail. Okay. It's probably a little easier to nail what's next for you. So, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: so what what do we have coming up uh, from Bud Hopkins that people can look forward to? Obviously, you said you've been working on this book for ten, fifteen years. So, yeah. You know, that's a magnum opus. But what, what what might be coming up next for you?
2: Well, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't foresee another book. That's that's for sure. At this point, I guess I'm a little tired of writing these things. Uh, I'm um, still working with abductees, and I'm also trying to, to train people to uh take up where I leave off and uh I want to spend of course more time in the studio working, painting. Mm-hmm. So uh all of that is, is uh is what's happening now. Sounds but good. you know at, at my age it's um, I'm not exactly leaping around and uh, <laughs> Uh, when you're two years short of 80 I and mean, you get kind of nervous
1: i can imagine yeah I'm, I'm already not looking forward to uh my my golden years now is there any way that people can obviously they can buy your books and stuff is there any way they can uh buy your art
2: well there's a uh a company called levis fine arts and uh they have been handling my work i don't know whether he's doing things uh, by email, but uh, I think it's possible. Actually, I could be contacted. The best way is probably a direct contact to me through the website of uh, the Intruders Foundation. And it's just simply intrudersfoundation, one word, .org. All
1: right. Sounds good, folks. Very easy.
2: And people can contact me. And if they are interested, you know, we could take it from there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Not just you know, folks, go out and not just get the books, but you know, I would love yeah. a, I would love a Bud Hopkins original. So I'm gonna have to start saving my money here for, <laughs> for, for that. Well, Bud, first of all, thank you for giving us the extra time. We had uh, you slaughtered for 90 minutes and we went two hours, and I obviously really appreciate that. I know you're a busy guy and you want to enjoy the fine weather over there at the Cape today. So I really appreciate that you gave us the extra time. I've already. Thrown a heaping pile of platitudes on you at the introduction, so I don't want to overwhelm you here at the end. But uh, you know, you're an icon, first ballot Hall of Famer. You set the stage for so much research, and and really, you know, uh, was one of the founding fathers of a whole branch of esoterica. And you know, I'm just so happy that that you've put together your memoir here, Art Life and UFOs from Anomalous Books, and really put it down into words so people in the future, can look back and know who Bud Hopkins was and, and know how he shaped the field in such an amazing way. And I highly recommend people go out and get it and read the whole book, and you'll learn so much about his life. Just an amazing, epic life story. So many incidents and, and, and tales and run-ins with famous people that we didn't even get a chance to talk about here this week on the program that you definitely want to find out about in the book. I can't put you over enough, but I'm really happy we finally got a chance to talk and have you here on the program. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. And, you know, you're on the Cape. I'm 20 minutes outside of Boston. Hopefully our paths will cross sooner than later. And I would definitely love to meet you because I have a lot of dog-eared pages in the book that we didn't get to talk about. But uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the program. You're a living legend, and it was awesome to get a chance to speak with you and, and talk about not just UFOs, but also your amazing careers and artists as well.
2: Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate all of those wonderful things being said again. Uh, I'm, again, a tiny bit embarrassed, but uh, <laughs> I love it anyway. <laughs>
1: Thank you. That does it for the penultimate edition of BoA Audio Season Four. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course to the amazing Bud Hopkins. Do yourself a favor and pick up his book, Art, Life, and UFOs, A Memoir. I'm sure that going into this episode, you already had a great appreciation for Bud Hopkins, but when you read this book, you will see a whole nother side of him. Amazing stuff. Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir from anomalous books. Check it out. And if you want more from Bud Hopkins, check out the Intruders Foundation website, www.intrudersfoundation.org. That's the official Bud Hopkins website. We can find out all sorts of stuff about his abduction research. Moving right along, it's time for the final BOA Audio listener feedback of the season. Originally, I had planned to do just one email, but we had some technical difficulties really close to the end time of the show we almost had it all together and things went completely haywire and bumped us up quite a bit of time and then I got a hilarious email which I've got to include here as the final email of the season but first I got one here that came to us all the way from the UK and I've been sitting on it for quite a while but it's time to take care of this one from Jim in the UK here's what he has to say I've noticed that you say awesome a lot I always thought that on a sliding scale of goodness, okay was at one end and awesome was at the other. With cool, wicked, and brilliant somewhere in between. What are you going to say when the aliens land on the White House lawn or a Yeti pops into a downtown bar for a beer and a pack of Marlboros? LOL. I'm not sure how to read that, so we'll just go with the LOL. From Jim in the UK. I was going to go into this whole thing about the sliding scale of goodness, but you guys already know that I am the master of hyperbole. I don't know what to tell you. Every time I have a guest on, I'm almost always blown away by their stuff, and then the next guest comes along, and I'm even more stunned and amazed by what they're bringing to the table. This is a journey for me as much as it is the listeners, and I'm always excited when I get some compelling and really great stuff, and I tend to go over the top in my pronouncements about how awesome stuff is, but Trust me, if it wasn't awesome, I wouldn't say awesome, and a lot of times I don't say awesome. And I leave it up to the discerning BOA Audio listeners to figure out really what I'm trying to say between the lines there. Sliding scale of goodness, I don't know what to tell you, buddy, but I do know that if the aliens landed on the White House lawn or a Yeti popped into a downtown bar for a beer and some smokes, there's really only one reaction, and that's holy shit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Mag and her children. I shouldn't have sworn just then, but that's just the way it is. At some point, you just got to go to expletives, and that's what you do when you run into the esoteric in real life. Thanks for writing in, Jim. I appreciate it, all the way from the UK. We were going to end the listener feedback there from Jim in the UK, sort of in keeping with our theme and our love for the international listeners, but as I said, this email popped into my inbox literally moments before I sat down to tape this, and I had to read it, Because it sums up the season almost perfectly. It's short and sweet and 100% accurate. Here's what it is. Showtimes is the title. And just one sentence. All right, Tim. Stop pissing around and give us the show. Damn it. Signed, Jennifer. No hometown listed. Just Jennifer. And, you know, that really sums up the season. I don't know what the hell has been going on with me, folks. I've been really bad about the deadlines here for the episodes this year. Maybe that builds up the anticipation and we finally finally got a listener just to outright snap and send us an email. I laughed about it. I wrote her back, told her, you're the final email of the season. Jennifer, congratulations. You really hit me right on the nose with that one. I'm going to make my new season resolution to be more punctual with the show. I know I said that about the final four of season four, and that fell through the cracks pretty quickly, But this time, I mean it. We're going to really work hard next season to try and get the episodes out to you on time. And I'm going to really take a look at what's been getting in our way here as we try to get the episodes out to you on time. I apologize, but I'm laughing about it, and I hope the great listeners out there are too. I can't believe somebody finally called me out on the really awful scheduling of the shows at times and uh, how we pass my self-imposed deadlines constantly constantly. I don't know what's wrong with me. I gotta stop doing these deadlines that I just can't catch. But anyway, new season resolution, Jennifer, I promise we're gonna try and get the episodes out to y'all on a more timely basis. So there you go, those are the two emails. Jim from the UK, Jennifer can't wait any longer. No hometown listed, she wants the show, damn it. Thank you for being the final emails of season four. You guys are awesome. Just because we're not reading emails at the end of next week's season finale doesn't mean I don't want to hear from you folks out there. If you're interested in having certain guests or certain topics on the show, now is the perfect time to get in touch with me because really we have a clean slate right now for Season 5. I've got a tentative pencil-written list here for Season 5, but I want to hear what the listeners think and who they'd like to hear from, as well as what they liked here in Season 4 In addition to all the previous seasons, I mean, we're sitting on a massive Rolodex of guests and topics, and I'd love to bring some of these folks back in Season 5. So tell me who you want to hear back on the show, tell me who you want to hear for the first time on the show, and just tell me what you think of the show. You know, I'm interested in feedback from all the awesome BOA Audio listeners. How do you get in touch with me? That's simple. There's three methods. Chances are you've heard me do this about a thousand times, let's try and make it short and sweet. Email BOAaudio at Hotmail.com or go to the website BOA and click the contact button. And the third method, it is interactive, the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Those are the three methods. There's a whole bunch of other ways, Facebook, MySpace, Twitter. I'm everywhere. I'm not hard to get a hold of. So now I just turn it over to you, and I look forward to hearing from the awesome BOA Audio listeners. Up next is the thanks portion of the show. You know them, you love them. They are the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Siniuk, and A.M. Murphy. Tons of stuff at BOA in the last week. Since you heard from me, I'm going to run through the list really, really quickly as best I can. A.M. Murphy's Not Always So, under the title Big Brother and Soror Mystica, all about Alastair Crowley and Carl Jung. Fascinating stuff there. Lasha Seneok's Field Notes, Me and Chicken Little, We Got Issues. Hilarious title, I love that title. All about astrology and a certain window we're in right now. Troubling stuff, perhaps. Exciting stuff, perhaps. Check that out Richard's Room 101, also at BOA, it is a text interview with Len Osanic, host of Black Op Radio. Great stuff from Richard getting Len's opinion on a whole bunch of different JFK-related avenues of discussion. Then it was Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm from earlier this week, UFOs in TV, Backwards in Time from Mr. Monk to Barney Miller. Really, really insightful stuff from Regan Lee, looking at the latest episode of Monk, titled Mr. Monk and the UFO. Fun episode of Monk. I liked it, even though it was kind of anti-UFO, but Regan dissects it. And then looks back to a classic episode of Barney Miller, which was actually pro-UFO. So things aren't always that bad with UFOs in TV. Wrapping it all up, Leslie's Gray Matters, titled this week, 40 and Felines. Sadly, talking about the loss of Leslie's cat, James Bond, and some of the more spooky incidents that have happened since James Bond passed away. It's kind of a sad edition of Grey Matters, but definitely uplifting as well, and one you want to check out. So there is five new columns from BOA, dealing with a huge range of stuff. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns, at been all of America, as I just showed you You're really only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. There's a financial crisis. It's been going on since the start of Season 4. I feel bad asking for money at the end of every episode, but it's something I gotta do. This thing costs me money. We produce a ton of episodes for you every year. The phone bills are huge, and the bandwidth bills are huge. And as we're closing out Season 4, you know, we're kind of in the red a little bit, and we'd like to get the show in the black and have a little bit of a nest egg to keep us going through the leaner months as the year goes on during Season 5. Why am I telling you all this? Because I turn to you great folks who are listening to the program to help us out. Please, please, please make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. We would really appreciate it. How do you do that? It's simple. You go to BOA and click the PayPal button. You can find it on the homepage or the BOA Audio Archive page. Click that. They'll walk you through the process at PayPal. It's wicked simple. Anyone could do it. I hope you can do it, and I hope you donate to us. We'd really appreciate it. And, obviously, all donations go towards All of America and BOA Audio, keeping the program, the podcast, the website, all that stuff up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. You already know what's going on next week. First, I'll give you the heads up. It may be about ten days until you hear the season finale. I want to put together a little musical closer there for the season like we've done the last few years, so stick around towards the middle of next week for that, and then probably another four or five days after that, you'll hear the season finale. Trust me, though, it is worth the wait Why? Because we're closing the book on Season 4 with one of the biggest interviews in the history of the program. Our guest is one of the more enigmatic, infamous, and legendary figures in the history of UFO studies, John Lear. This is an ultra-rare two-hour conversation. We're going to be covering a ton of stuff. I'm going to run through the list for you really quick, and I'm probably going to lose my voice by the time I'm done reading it. Point by point, just a scratch at the surface of what we're going to be talking about with John Lear. Paul Benowitz, Bill Cooper, Bill Moore, 1980s ufology. The 1989 MUFON convention in Las Vegas. Stuff from the 1987 Lear document that was posted to the internet and around ufology that blew a lot of minds at the time. The alien spaceship that allegedly crashed and was buried because it was too big to move the concept of souls and reincarnation and how the aliens may fit into all this, the incident at the Dulce base between an E.T. and the army, human mutilations, UFO disclosure and the odds of it ever actually happening, bizarre things on the moon, the secret space program, undersea connections between the western half of the United States, John's theory on 9-11 that the planes were holograms and the towers were felled via space weapons, Bob Lazar in the Area 51 story, The State of Ufology Today, Exopolitics, Why the Mainstream Branches of Esoterica Seem to Be Quite Different from Where John's Going With A Lot of His Theories, George Knapp, Art Bell, Why Ufology Isn't a Team Sport, and a Shitload More Stuff. As you could just tell, we run the gamut of Esoterica in this conversation, and trust me, just about everything John Lear has to say is pretty remarkable stuff. I know to a lot of newcomers in Esoterica, John Lear's kind of this mythical and mysterious figure, and a lot of people just quickly dismiss John's stuff because it's so outrageous at times, and they forget that he had this tremendous impact on the field of ufology in the 1980s. Both Art Bell and George Knapp have credited him with planting the seed for their future exploits exploring the unknown, and as most people know, John Lear was side-by-side with Bob Lazar as one of the godfathers of Area 51. This guy is someone who forever altered the landscape of esoterica and ufology. So much of what you see and hear in the world of UFO studies today has John Lear's fingerprints all over it. It's definitely a must-hear episode of BOA Audio. It's the season finale of season four The enigmatic and infamous John Lear. And on that note, we close the book here on the penultimate episode. Thank you, folks, for your patience in waiting for this episode. This is why we don't do the show usually in the summer. This is why we've stopped every year around the beginning of July because I got a lot going on here in the summer. It's tough to do a podcast and do my other life work. But we're getting it together here, and uh, we got one more episode for you, obviously. And I want to thank you all for being so patient. I really appreciate it. The BOA Audio listeners are awesome. You guys really are the fuel that drives the machine. We are a grassroots program, and you guys are the grassroots. I'll be babbling like a moron on this season finale episode anyway, thanking everybody. So let's just close out the episode now so I can save things up and get it out to you as soon as possible.
0: Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening. And signing off.